Okay, welcome back to Firewall. As usual, I'm your host, Bradley Tusk. This is a Tuesday episode, so as usual, with us is our friend and producer, Hugo Lindgren. Hugo, how's it going? Good morning, Bradley. So uh, we're recording this one on Sunday morning, so it's Super Bowl Sunday. It'll air on Tuesday. We are recording, as usual, from PT Network, 180 Orchard Street in Manhattan. Um, I'm going to ask you for your yeah. score of the game, which is we're recording before, so you'll know right away when you hear this whether, Bradley, how close he was. What's the score of the game today? 34-28, Eagles. Okay, 34-28, Eagles. You heard it. If, if it turns out that's the score, then, God, I hope you put money on it, but I, I guess you're I, not going to. No, no, okay. cable. Um, but uh, a few things. So one, um, two-part episode today. Uh, Tom Chavez, who is the founder and CEO of Superset, which is a really fascinating company, uh, is going to be on today as well. So Hugh and I are going to talk for a bit, and then we're going to flip it over to Tom. Um, and other than that, oh, just I'm supposed to say this every time, and I always forget, but please... Rate and review the podcast if you can. Thanks. All right, you go. Sorry and we are questions. recording live from PNT Knitwear yeah. on Orchard Street in Manhattan. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so we have a lot of uh, a lot of different things we're going to cover today, but we have sort of two bigger subjects. Uh, I'll just say the two things that they are, and then we'll launch into them. One is there was a proposal in the Athletic about how to realign Major League Baseball, which is interesting in and of itself. But then Bradley has kind of a, another theory about, um, or at least a. I guess you're thinking of this as, as sort of a starting Yeah, point. I wanted to get the conversation going on it. But it to think clear. about realignment of the entire country, right? Co- correct. Right. So, so, so y- we're gonna... Using Bowden's thing is just sort of a kickoff, was my, was my thought. Okay, so we're going to talk about that. Then the other big thing we're going to talk about, and this is something that Bradley touched on very briefly in this conversation with Catherine Dockery, Dockery of Vice Ventures, which is going to be on our Thursday episode. But he talked about, uh, he mentioned... <laughs> regulatory arbitrage. And that's a that's a term that I've heard Bradley use a number of times. Um, but it suddenly sort of popped in my head that I'd like him to focus on that and talk more specifically about it. People stop me on the street all the time for a clear <laughs> definition of regulatory arbitrage. Like I, I can't get fucking down the block even anymore. Um, that is true. Yeah. So um, let's start with Major League Baseball realignment yep. plan. Bob Bowden in the Athletic. Tell me what that plan is and what so, appeals to you. Yeah. About so it. what? So generally speaking, as I think listeners of this podcast know, I, I like thinking about how things could be different and better, and how would we change them to do so, and generally more on a societal level as opposed to like how do we make this you know soda can uh, three degrees colder. I'm saying that because I'm drinking a, a can of soda or water right now. Um, so uh, Jim Bowden is a oh, is it Jim Bowden. I'm Jim sorry, Bowden, Bowden. Uh, former general manager in, the, in in baseball. He writes for The Athletic, really creative guy. And he did a piece saying, you know, as they're going to add two more teams, they think, to Major League Baseball, why not use it as an opportunity to totally redo all the divisions? And he proposed new regional divisions like New York would be Mets, Yankees, Phillies, Red Sox. So his point is more, more local rivalries, you know, you get to see the teams that, that are really in your backyard. Um, so anyway, it was, it was an interesting idea. I, I didn't really want to come here and sort of debate which major league teams should be in which division because that would be really boring for most of our listeners. But as I think you've heard me say before in a somewhat apocalyptic way, I believe that absent massive structural reform in the way that we vote and elect people, um, we will not be one country in 25 years, nor do I think we actually should, even should be one country in 25 years if we can't figure out a way to get things done. Um, and so I was thinking about, like, okay, let's take Bowden's concept, but make it about, you know, how would you realign the country if we were not one country anymore? Um, and this is not the episode where we can do this, where we're going to come up with an actual proposal, but I kind of wanted to just get the conversation going on, like, 
how would you even analyze it? It's like, what are the criteria, right? So I'll, I'll give you the list that I have. Okay. And tell me where, where you'd add in. So geography, obviously, it's much more helpful if states are contiguous than if they're not. Um, and to a certain extent, you know, viewpoints are, are regional and geographic. So that makes it somewhat feasible. Political affiliation, you know, if a state is very red, my guess is that the, that the people who are in the blue state that's looking for, for partners probably doesn't want the red state because that's the point of the separation in the first place. So political affiliation, size of the state's economy, right? So like if I'm New York, I'm not sure that I want to take on, you know, a, a state that has sort of a struggling economy and just subsidize them. And in fact, if you're going to do that, if I were in New York City... You don't City, think New York's economy is struggling enough? Like... Well, I would just say if I were, you know, let's say there was a New England, Mid-Atlantic, like right. we don't need Vermont or New Hampshire or these places that, you know, are pretty, pretty stagnant and low income. Like, why do I have to subsidize? I already subsidize the rest of New York. We all do with New York City taxpayers. But then the question becomes, you know what? Why even do that at all? Why not make New York City like Singapore and just make it a city state? Have you ever in all of your time in, in city government and in and around uh, city politics, have you ever heard someone talk seriously about that no right right no. so it's just kind of a like a cool idea but I, well you know there was a there was a, a effort uh to either realign california into multiple states or to make it independent there was talk about this maybe five six years ago okay i don't think it went anywhere but that would be the closest thing um so um access to natural resources right so all of a sudden now if you know obviously everyone imports what they need but if you are, you know, the country, the sub-country, whatever it is, that has lots of, you know, valuable natural resources, whether it's, you know, gas for fracking or oil or, you know, timber or whatever it is, that, that becomes something you want to think about. Um, political leadership and culture, right? So the, the culture in this country, which is really what drives a lot of the divisions that we have, is obviously very different from one part of the country to another. Minnesota is radically different from... Uh, New Jersey, which is radically different from Alabama, which is radically different from California, right? So maybe you would really look at it from a cultural thing and say, what we want are like-minded people so that they're in a position to actually get things done as opposed to this endless sort of polarization and, you know, dissension that we have at all times. So I think those are it. I, I asked ChatGPT how the states would split <laughs> up, and it did not have, it just punted it. It's just like, oh, there are many different things that you could think about. Um, but it, it did not reveal anything particularly insightful. So this is my first question is, do you think, and I, I realize that we don't, we're not at the stage of like putting actual plan out there, but do you think of it as sort of like some kind of federation, like, like well, sort think, of I EU? I see like the EU. Yeah, exactly. But the EU causes a lot of, um, I don't, I don't know if it doesn't cause problems. I guess it's problems and opportunities. But the but the redistribution of resources is a big part of what the EU does, and that's pretty much what the biggest problem is. Yeah, in, although in a weird way, this might be the opposite, right? Which is so right now, New York City for every dollar sent to Washington gets back like seventy cents in in federal funds. New York right? City, or is that state? There's a city one. There's a state one. I kind of forget. But it's which, in the but, seventy but, but, cents. But the reality is. The city and the suburb is where all the money comes from, right? right. The rest of the state is a, a net taker, not a net giver. Um, and so um, in this case, at least for us, it would probably be the opposite, which is if we're only paying local taxes now, um, even though obviously your amount would go up because the amount of services that have to be provided would be significantly greater, um, 
you might not be in a place where you have to subsidize others. So there are going to be times where you would, times where you wouldn't. Um, look, and ultimately, I, I think it's an EU model because we want to have shared and common infrastructure. We want to have shared and common defense overall. I guess each one of those new countries would be part of NATO, I would guess. Um, so, yeah. I, I maybe, think a, maybe some wouldn't. <laughs> maybe some wouldn't, right. But I, I think a federation could, could work. And, you know, within that said, every country has sovereignty. And if some of them chose not to be part of this, that's their right. I could see Florida not being part of NATO. Texas, for sure. Yeah. Right. Right. Um, so I, one thing I can't wrap my head around is I just can't see how it's anything but geography. Like, I mean, I, I see your point that New York and California have like some cultural affinities and certainly uh, with some shared values, I guess. But the but do they could you have a country that was like New York and California? Yeah, I, mean, I think so. And then maybe one or two things in between. Maybe because look, I mean, I understand that that service provision is obviously much more fragmented and expensive if you're doing it that way than if everything's kind of in one contiguous area. But ultimately, if they're saying, okay, these are the common set of laws that we're going to live by and policies that we're going to have, I don't know really why the two states have to be next to each other in order to do that. I mean, think about like um, college football. You know, the conferences no longer have anything to do with yeah, weird, geography it? right now. Yeah. It's just based on sort of these superpowers get created, and they don't worry much at all about kind of where Oh, that's from. interesting. So college football is almost the model here where it's like this, it's just like the... But the interesting thing, of course, that's just a pure strong versus weak situation where yeah, like that's just revenue. Yeah. Um, so the other thing is, so you just you you put a timetable on this. You said twenty five years. Yeah. If you and I realize this is highly highly speculative, but what is the sort of instigating event that begins the breakdown of the United States into smaller countries? Like. Like, what's the, I mean, well, Jan I mean, 6th is obviously Yeah, like I was about this. to say January 6th, we might have already had it, right? right? I mean, January 6th, when you had a whole world of members of Congress that basically denied that it was a coup and, and tried to prevent any sort of enforcement or, or ramifications, that might be it, right? And there's no real reason to think that January 6th is going to be an isolated one-off incident. Like, yes, hopefully Trump will never be president again. But, you know, for as long as people feel incredibly aggrieved and for as long as Earned media and social media mainly exist just to fan the flames and make people feel even angrier and even worse. People are going to do crazy shit, right? And you get to a point where there's enough crazy shit. For, you know, it doesn't have to be January 6th. I don't want to live in a world where it's so easy to get an assault weapon that my kid, when, when he or she or when they go to school, it, is at risk, right? So you could argue that the next time there's a school shooting, you know, people would say, fuck it. Like, I just don't want to have the same laws as Alabama. Uh, and it'll be different. Or, you know, um, immigration, right, with this whole migrant crisis or healthcare, education. There's so many issues that we seem to have these fundamental ideological disagreements about that, you know, kind of any of them coming to a head could provoke the thought process of, you know what, rather than sort of fighting endlessly and failing to accomplish anything and failing to solve any problem, what if we split up into two or three or 15 and we had like-minded views and the policies would apply to a, a narrower plot of land than they do right now, but that could actually work. So the the uh, the sort of vision of it makes a lot of sense to me. It's the process that I can't understand. Now, so if you're, if you're, I mean, you are a political strategist. Um, do you go to the governor of, of New York State and say, hey, why don't we take a meeting with the governor of California and talk about why this might be a good yeah, idea? Yeah, although I think that this sort of more happens and then sort of the it, it all 
comes together very quickly, right? right. Which is, so there's some precipitating event. Some state right. says, fuck this, like Texas or whatever it is, we're out. Um, and by the way, Vermont has tried to secede before, um, so maybe it's Vermont. But, um, and then all of a sudden, people start cutting deals left and right. I did just read an article in the New York Times about how people are moving to, so uh, Vermont, New Hampshire, Maine have these really sort of old populations, and they, um, a lot of people move there um, during the pandemic. And so it's sort of like this, like finally the, the, there's kids in these old towns yeah, and they've had kids and all yeah. that, um, or haven't had kids in a long time. Um, but the numbers were still tiny. I mean, they were talking yeah. about like 50,000 people or something. So it wasn't, didn't seem like it was sweeping the nation. Um, okay. So what, what's, what's next on this? What do you want to do? Ne next would be, I, I would love feedback from the listeners of like, forget two things. One, what would you use as the criteria for the analysis itself? And mm -hmm. then two, what would your map look like? Right. And what I would say is, if you send it to us at what info uh, at firewall media is that, is that our site? Yeah, info, info, info at firewall media. If you send it to that, we'll take the ones we think are really interesting and, and we'll talk about them on the air. I feel like we need some visuals for this. I'd like to see. I almost like to see like a high school class like come up with it. be a great debate sort of uh, topic. Yeah, I wonder if they probably do do. That. Isn't Abby on the debate team? She is, though I've never heard her talk about this specific question. Um, okay, let's talk about regulatory arbitrage. <laughs> the topic on the tip of everyone's tongue. Well, it, it, I mean, it, it is kind of an exciting way of like interacting with the world. It doesn't sound very interesting, but it, it is like, would you just give the, yeah, so the he, working he, he, definition? Look, regulatory arbitrage, from my perspective, means um, how do you, in any given situation, kind of use politics, use government, use regulation to create a material advantage for your point of view or your company or whatever it is, right? And so sometimes what that means is forum shopping, right? So so a company, we do this all the time, we'll say, okay, we need to launch this new product. It's gray as to whether or not it's legal or not because no one's ever done it before, so there are no laws about it specifically. What are the five jurisdictions that we think would be the most open and friendly to this? And then so we can develop some proof of concept and get going there. So that's a form of regulatory arbitrage, which yeah. is we're analyzing all 50 states and saying, this is where launch. Right? And does that tend to be the same five states a lot? Of the no, time? I mean, look, sometimes it does line up on on blue state, red state type stuff, right? Like worker classification is an example. But but no, not necessarily. I mean, it, it, it could be lots of things, especially when you get to a municipal level. You have some municipalities that are very kind of progressive in the sense of, of eager to, to try out new technologies and ideas and others that are much more stayed and, and stuck in their own ways. And so um, so one definition of regular arbitrage is basically forum shopping to come up with the places where you think you can get the best outcome for your, uh, for your thing. The other thing, though, would be when it really makes sense for someone to hire Touch Strategies or Pericles or when it makes sense for Touch Ventures to invest in something and work on it, is the hair the more hair it has on it the better it is for us right <laughs> so like we don't do biotech and the reason we don't do biotech is you know the fda has a very clearly prescribed process for how to get a drug approved um it's a political process but it, it's pretty straightforward and it kind of always sticks to the relatively the same script and the biotech funds understand how to do it right and so they now, you know, they, they know how to sort of invest in companies that they think have a, a decent shot of making it through the process. They know how to try to impact the process to get their thing legalized. And, and would you say that's a, a, a good model of how government should work, or is it... A, I think the FDA works pretty mixed? well. No, 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 the FDA generally works reasonably well. Um, but, but the point is, I, if I invested in a biotech company, 
I don't have any material advantage over the over the biotech startups that did because the FDA process is pretty prescribed, it's pretty narrow, and there's not that much I can do to really change it. But all of a sudden, you know, like when FanDuel, when we got cease and desist orders from dozens of state attorney generals in a couple of day period, and now we're facing legislation in, you know, two, three dozen states to, to ban us, then we have a massive advantage because we can operate in all of those places at the same time and we can handle that kind of scale. Like when Bird, we, I think we launched in 60 cities in one week at one point, like we can handle that. So for me, regulatory arbitrage is really saying, how do I recreate the world in a way where um, my team and whatever it is that I'm, I'm pushing has a material advantage over everyone else, which increases our odds of success. And when does it not work? Is it is like what's what's well, it national, right? So like, for example, Biden in his State of the Union talked about a tax on unrealized gains, which is fucking crazy, right? So unrealized gains means use my venture capital fund as an example. I invest five million dollars in a company at a forty million dollar valuation. Uh, on paper, they do two more rounds of financing. It's up to $300 million. So in theory, I've got a $260 million gain. So if you tax unrealized gains, you would say, okay, Bradley, you have to pay taxes on that $260 million. And I would say, what $260 million? It's all on paper. I don't have any money from this to then pay out in taxes. What I do get money from it, I do pay it out in taxes. And this thing could go down right after that. And effectively, if if I had to pay tax on unrealized gains... I couldn't operate, right? We wouldn't have enough cash flow to, to do so, that. So, but Biden understands that, right? Or does he not? I, I th- well, what he specifically, he's a man who spent 50 years just being a political hack, so who knows what he understands. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I'll vote for him again, and I, I think he's our best bet, but still, let's not, he's not a deep thinker. Um, but this but, isn't a deep thinking thought no, problem, I, I, is it? I, like- so my hope and thought here is they throw shit in the speech sometimes just to give a nod to a particular constituency. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe this was sort of their nod to Elizabeth Warren and, and the far left. But here's the thing. So it did come up in Albany a couple, maybe two years ago, the notion of an unrealized uh, gains tax. And if you did that, I would move Tush Ventures out of New York City or New York State. Um, and I think pretty much every hedge fund, private equity fund, venture capital fund, investment bank would have to do the same yeah, thing. I mean, and, and imagine the, the windfall for New Jersey and Connecticut, because obviously it'd be the easiest just to move. You put the office in Hoboken or something. Right. right. But let's say Biden's thing somehow became reality. Now I got to leave the country. Like that's a different, you know, so where the regulatory arbitrage the right? really. Yeah, exactly. Where the regulatory arbitrage really fails is you know you can pit cities and states against each other. You can play them off each other. You can sort of make choices between which ones you think are more advantageous. But when something becomes a national policy, uh, it's very different. So I remember like when when I worked for Mike Bloomberg, and he would be asked about tax increases because there was always all this sort of progressive pressure to raise taxes, raise taxes, raise taxes. And Mike was against it. And the, what Mike would say, which I thought was absolutely right, is like, look, if the federal government wants to raise taxes, so it applies to everybody, they can do that. But if we raise taxes just in New York City, all we're doing is making Texas and Florida and all these other jurisdictions even more attractive. We're just going to lose net revenue. We're not going to gain net revenue. So his point was, on a national level, you, everyone's kind of stuck. and No one has anywhere to go. On a local level, you know, you're creating too much displacement. So uh, this, this is a good segue into the, the um, sort of New York versus Florida debate, which has been going on forever, but, yeah. but it's sort of heated up in the last week. Um, and the Wall Street Journal had a had a sort of side by side comparison of of New York and Florida, which is kind of interesting because certainly on the on this tax question, you're talking about 
So right here, it says that the state income tax in New York State is 10.9% is zero in Florida. Mm -hmm. The income tax rate in New York City, the top income tax rate is 14.8%. Mm -hmm. It is also zero in, it's zero in Miami. Yeah. Um, basically, on everything, the sales tax in Florida. I, I have a friend who lived in Malibu, run to fund, moved to Miami, bought like, I don't know, a $25, $30 million house, something like that. And what he said is, the amount he will save over, I don't know, the next 10 years in California state taxes alone pays for the house. Right. So interestingly, and th this is a, a question I have, is, is, so they have the the side-by-side uh, -side comparison of the state budget, too. So Florida is slightly bigger than New York State, population-wise, 22 million versus 19.5 million. Um, and the budget in uh, New York, the state budget in New York is almost, it is, in fact, twice right. um, the, the state budget in Florida. Do you, as a New Yorker and as a New York taxpayer, do you feel like you are getting double the value of, no, of your... No, absolutely um, not. But I also do think that, look, there's an ideological choice that you are making, right? So if you live in Florida, um, you're certainly going to pay a lot less in taxes. You're probably going to have less regulation. Um, but the government social safety net is a lot narrower. It's a lot smaller, right? So... Public schools across Florida are getting significantly less money than public schools in New York. Public hospitals that treat the indigent in New York are getting a lot more money than, than hospitals in Florida. And sort of across the board, what New York has is an infrastructure designed to help people in need. So then the question becomes, well, if you're doing that, if you're able to deliver double the value to the people in need, then it becomes sort of an ideological trade-off choice. The problem is, we don't create double value. Our public schools in New York are the best or just about the best funded in the country, and they still produce abysmal results, right? And so the argument in favor of Florida would be, you know what? You could spend $100 billion, You could spend $200 billion. You're not going to fix the problem either way. You might as well let people keep their money, and so the economy grows, and, and that's how you can help people through jobs. And the New York argument would be, we believe in a society where there is a moral obligation to you know, make sure that people have the basics and New York is a state that really cares about that and provides for it, and that's what I want to be part of, right? So that's sort of the underlying debate. I think the problem for New York is twofold. One is there's very little accountability for is all of this money actually going to anything that's producing results. I have yet to see a governor of New York that is all that is results oriented, right? Everyone is just purely spending oriented or political oriented. The only sort of real results-oriented politician I've seen, shockingly, is Mike Bloomberg, right? Um, and so as a result, they, they don't even think about the efficacy of the spending or is this a good use of taxpayer dollars. They just think about the politics of, like, well, will this group oppose me or help me in the next election if I give them what they want? Um, so that's number one. So the, the, the solution there, though, I would argue, gets us back to universal basic income, right, which is uh, I am willing to pay more in taxes to live in a world where people do have... Uh, better hospitals, better schools, all of that. But at the same time, um, I think the odds of people having better lives are a hell of a lot better if money just goes from you know my account to, to other people's accounts. As opposed to supporting all these sort of well, it goes through this massive government bureaucracy where like half the money just gets frittered away. Some of it gets siphoned off for. for but that is, of projects. course, in part the part of the public safety net, right? I mean, it's it, it's that it's that there's there's jobs for people. Yeah, I mean, yes, but if, if you were to view the government as our function is just to provide jobs for people and that's it, 
No, um, I, I agree. I mean, I'm that, not saying that's it's a, a very <laughs> losing proposition. That, that position very fast, right? That that's the Soviet Union. Right. So, um, so or New York State. <laughs> yeah. So so you know, look, I think that on one hand, I wouldn't want to be Florida because I think that morally we can do better than that. On the other hand, I wouldn't want to be New York because we do impose a much higher burden on our citizens in terms of taxes and regulation, and yet don't really achieve that much more with the money. So so one would be, I think, if New York were to change the way they're distributed the money, you know, don't reduce the taxes, just, just to, instead of having everything go through some mega government program where most of the time the money is wasted, just have it go directly from point A to point B, it, it would be a, a lot better. But I also think that the other problem New York has is, look, it, People are very mobile, right? People are very aware that Florida is there as an option, Austin, Texas is there as an option, and um, you get to a point where if things here get bad enough, if crime is bad enough, if quality of life is bad enough, if taxes are high enough, if some shit like an unrealized gain tax ever became reality, all of us have a breaking point, right? And and, and well, that's a big question you know, I have is is if you read about New York in the '60s and '70s when it was starting to really struggle and and there were, you know, sort of culminating in, in the in the near bankruptcy of the city. It seemed like there was a tremendous amount of real intensity and purpose around trying to figure out what to do that extended just not beyond just like people in City Hall and Albany, but also to like more to regular citizens seemed engaged in it in a way that it's hard to imagine that now. You know, um, it's, it's hard to imagine the sort of Felix Roten situation in 1975 where they really work yeah together. although that's well, my it's actually a question i have for you is, yeah. is that true or is that just the i'm way not sure it's totally true because okay. think think about 9-11 right so they came together again after that they kind of said okay we're going to put mike bloomberg in charge even though it's not normally who we would because we are so concerned about this well, 20 years ago <laughs> yeah well but but here's i guess the real difference is okay right in in the, in the 70s first of all the value proposition wasn't there when i was a kid we lived in sheepside bay in brooklyn and as soon as my parents were able to cobble together enough money for a down payment on a house in, in Nassau County, they, they did so right. because that was a better life that they thought they could give for their kids than, than staying in, you know, in Brooklyn in a really shitty situation. The other thing is this. In 1976, whatever it was, we were all much more on the same page and agenda because we were getting our information from far fewer sources, right? There was the three network news broadcasts. There were some newspapers. And ultimately... Um, we were all kind of reading and therefore thinking about and talking about the same things. Whereas right now, with just the way that the internet works, you know, there's no necessarily reason. Someone who even considers themselves informed could know all about foreign policy and energy policy and, you know, stem cell research and have no idea what the fiscal situation to New York is, even if they live right in the middle of, of well, Queens. Well, I, I, I did this thing where I went around asking people what they thought, how much they thought the New York City budget was. And I asked someone who works at the New York Times, and they thought it was ten to twelve billion dollars a year. The New York City budget, ten times that. Yeah, it's a hundred billion dollars. Like, like people have no idea. Like, um, and 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 people still think, even though it was said a million times around the George Floyd situation, people still think the NYPD is the biggest expense of the New York City budget. Right. No. Um, anyway, uh, well, but but l l please. L last thing here. Yes. <laughs> which. Um, when you tax this much money, when you pay, make people pay this much, they have a reasonable expectation. So you know what? I don't have to. 
I shouldn't have to then also give you all of my time and attention and volunteerism. I'm giving you a tremendous amount of money, double what Florida has, and you're totally fucking it up. The problem isn't my lack of civic engagement. The problem is your lack of, of leadership, your lack of ability to make any choices that are beyond just your own personal good and nothing else. And, and I think that this is part of the problem New York has, right, which is when you become such a high-dollar product, you create sort of a, 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 you foster this sense from the citizens of like, well, you better fucking give me something for my money. And then because that typically doesn't happen, that's what leads to all these people moving to Florida. Um, that's well said. Uh, let's talk about Biden for one second. Sure. Uh, we're not going to spend a long time on it, but it's a very simple question. Um, why do only 37% of surveyed Democrats want Biden to run again, while virtually every Democratic politician and pundit thinks he should? Because What's that golf? What explains it? Uh, the correlation between approval rating and re-election no longer is as strong as it used to be. So it used to really be you could tell someone chance of re-election based on what the voters thought of them. Did they prove they disapproved, positive, negative, fave, unfave, all that kind of stuff. And now I think they're just in two totally separate areas. So the first question is, are you happy with the status quo? And we live in a world right now where we are so fractionalized, so polarized, so dysfunctional. Everyone is so aggrieved. All of earned in social media is designed basically just to reinforce those grievances at all times that if you ask people, are they happy? No, they're not happy. I mean, even if you ask them within their own party, are you happy? No. And like, it's kind of like the backup quarterback, right? Like the notion of this mystical, you know, if Oprah Winfrey or Michelle Obama, these people like ever, this their dream candidate, the minute they got in the election, they start ripping them to fucking shreds, right? Everyone's the dream candidate until they become an actual candidate, and then all of a sudden, they're as much of a part of the problem as everyone else. So one is, you know, we like to hold out hope for this sort of ideal right. situation, right? Number one, and then number two. Um, we are just so generally upset and all of the mechanisms we've built to learn information and to share information are designed to reinforce how upset we are that it's very likely that you could give Biden a disapprove when a pollster calls you and still go out and vote for him. Okay, so this 37% number is a little more than, is a little different than approval rating, although it's obviously closely rated. Don't want him to run again. Now that is, I guess what you're saying is that's a kind of a weak number. Not doesn't say that much. Yeah, because like, okay, sure, in theory, but the reality is, okay, let's say that you know you don't want the Republican nominee to be the president. Okay, who we got, right? right. So like, you know, again, you say, oh, Buttigieg. But like, the reality is, Buttigieg lost last time, right? He won Iowa. He did like, well, a couple of early states, and then he totally fell off the map. So like, you have these people who, in theory might be exciting, but then in reality, Joe Biden beat all of them last time. Let me do a hypothetical, and, and I, I, like a, a, a well-established Democratic politician, public figure comes to you and said, you know what, fuck it, I'm not letting Biden run again unopposed. I'm just going to do it. You know, what would you... Is there anything other than what you just said that you'd try to talk them out of it? Like, I would just say, look, if you're going to run as a Democrat... There's an exceptionally good chance that you are going to waste an incredible amount of time and money and be embarrassed. Um, the odds of actually, uns it's pretty fucking rare. I'm trying to think of my. Do my you head. tell people you will be embarrassed? Is that a conversation all you've had time. a few times? All the time. Right. Every rich person who thinks they're special comes to see me when, before they run for office. And my advice to them is always the same do not do this. It's not going to work out for you. <laughs> and like, you know, they'll say, well, my Bloomberg is that. And it's like, you know, once in a blue moon it does, but. Um, not not that frequently. So, um, yeah, and I think so. If if you were to run against Biden, um, 
let's say it was someone with, you need a real ideological difference. So let's say it was AOC, right? Let's say, she, not that she's coming to me for advice, but, but let's just say she's the contrast. What a world that would be. Right, yeah, exactly. Um, will she pick off voters from him? Yes, it'll be a lot like 2016. Sanders effectively weakened Hillary enough to make it that much you know, more feasible for Trump to win in the general election. So I think odds are, if you were to primary Biden, especially from the left, um, you're not going to actually win the nomination. You're just going to make it more likely that Trump or DeSantis or someone else becomes the president. Okay. Um, we're going to move on to your uh, uh, your recommendation of the week. Okay. But I want to actually, I just want to read something. This is like I'm going to put a pin in this subject. I, I read this um, I read this thing on, on the Marginal Revolution blog, which you and I uh, are, are big fans of. And there was a study done by two economists. I think one's from Denmark and one's from Norway. And the, uh, their paper was about why do companies go woke? And I just want to read the, the, yeah. the summary of their findings, and, and maybe we'll talk about this in a future episode. There is little evidence, they wrote, of systemic, systematic support for woke ideas among executives and the population at large. And going woke does not appear to improve company performance. Why then are so many firms embracing woke policies and attitudes? We suggest that going woke is an emergent strategy that is largely shaped by middle managers rather than owners, top managers, or employees. I mean that seems like a like yeah, a, almost I mean, that, like that, a that's what we we've, we've been saying which is the um you know the 16% right which is you get to a place where there are people who are successful enough that they sort of feel the pain of not being more successful economically status everything else they are unwilling generally to say it's because I'm not quite smart enough, good enough, hardworking enough, risk tolerant enough, whatever it is. So instead they say it's because the people who are ahead of me are corrupt and immoral, right? And they develop this sort of whole rhetoric of self-righteousness and antagonism. And the reality is there's a lot more of the 16% than there is of the 1%, right? It's a lot easier to make less money than it is to make more money. And so as a result, you have this commonality across you know, newspapers and TV stations across nonprofits, across universities, and according to Marginal Revolution, even across companies, right, that sort of now move forward this kind of 16% mindset, which is sort of meant to show how virtuous the 16% are, and therefore, even though they don't actually have the things that they want in life at the amount that they want them, they're still better because they are morally superior. Um, and this now sort of gets implemented across the board. And the biggest problem is, the 16% are not looking out for the 80th percent, right? So we've talked this before. The reason affordable housing doesn't get built is because the 16% are the NIMBYs, right? They're the ones who want... Well, some the, of the 1% are the NIMBYs, too. Sometimes, right? but... You but, don't think? Uh, I don't see so much affordable housing going up in Bridgehampton. I mean... No, wasn't there some big thing passed to, to do that in the Hamptons, like, last year? I think I wouldn't say big thing. I don't know but, if in the Hamptons. I don't know. But, um, but, but generally speaking... In New York City, let's just take this example, the community boards, all of the different groups that get involved, that's not the 1%, right? That's the 16%. And, you know, there's a project up in Harlem that was going to build like 145th and Lenox that was supposed to build, you know, a whole bunch of new affordable housing. And the local council member blocked it because she said she doesn't want any kind of gentrification. And instead, what's now going to be there is a truck lot. So you're not only yeah. not going to have the housing, but you're going to significantly increase asthma. Well, but that was sort of a, an asshole play by the developer, too, to put the truck. I mean, I, I, he felt aggrieved from not being able to build his, his apartment yeah, building. Yeah, but the, but the point is the, the 16 they block charter schools. They block affordable housing. All kinds of things that would ultimately really help poor people. They, 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 they want to defund the police 
when in reality, the people who most want and need the police tend to be people in, in communities of color that have higher crime and people don't want to be at risk to that. So um, it's the worst of all worlds because it, all of the views are built on um, anger, insecurity, self-righteousness, and they're not even views that actually advance society in any particularly good way. You know, I said we were going to talk about that later, but look, we just talked about we it. Did. Um, let's go on to your recommendation. Yeah, so... so uh, on tomorrow, which is Monday, the day before you're hearing this, we are going to announce the finalists for the 2023 Gotham Book, Book Prize. And this is the third year? Third year we're doing it. Okay. So year one, James McBride, Deacon King Kong won. Year two, Invisible Child by Andrea Elliott. And that won last year. So I'm going to read off the nominees um, since... Um, how many, how many one, are there? Like 11, I think. 11. And then I'm going to just name the ones that I really enjoyed. So there's... Wait, you I, can't do that, can you? You're going you're gonna, to you're gonna edit your own list? Okay. I'm just going to say it's the ones show. the ones that I liked. Yeah, okay. just recommendations, right? All right. Um, activities of daily. And I have some of them. I, I, I'm not going to recommend only because I haven't read them yet. Right. Okay. So activity of da daily living. Lisa Xiao Chen. Um, An honest living by Dwyer Murphy. That one I would recommend. Big Girl by Mecca Jamila Sullivan. Uh, don't Nobody Give a Shit What Happened to Carlotta by James Hanaham. Olga Dies Dreaming by Joto Gonzalez. I really like that one quite a bit. Roses in the Mouth of a Lion by Bushra Rahman. Didn't read that. The Deceptions by Jill Bialowski. Anything you haven't read, you're going to. Started that last night. Better. Yeah, yeah. Or at the very least, I will give it 50 pages. Right. Right. If after 50 pages I'm not into it, then I know I'm not going to vote for it. I don't need to keep reading it. Uh, so there, there, there are a few on this list like that already, but I'm not going to insult the, um, the yeah, authors. Yeah, uh, the Sewing Girl's Tale by John Wood Sweet. Um, Stories from the Tenants Downstairs by Siddiq Fofana. I will just come right out and say this is going to be my vote. Uh, I think it's a remarkable, remarkable book. Couldn't recommend it more highly. Um, three has, that, has that guy been in the store yet? I guess. Uh, I don't know. Reading? I, I don't know, but we're going to do an event. I think we're going to offer events to all of the nominees at the store if they want them. Um, three Muses by Martha Anth Martha Antol and Trust by Hernan Diaz, which is, you know, I think a book that I thought was fine, pretty good. Um, everyone else seems to think it's exceptional who read it. So I, I would guess that if you're looking for recommendations, read it because I'm the only one. And I didn't think it was bad. I just sort of didn't, didn't, didn't touch you, touch me in the way that it seemed to others. But but it clearly did seem to touch others. So, um, you know, there, there's a few of those that I right now could recommend that that you read. There's one or two that I probably wouldn't recommend. So I just won't say that at all. And then there's a bunch that I haven't read yet. Um, but yeah, so uh, stay tuned. In, in April, we're voting. I think it's like April 13th or something like that. I'm sure the whole world will be watching on live stream. Um, and <laughs> it's going to be like the Met uh, costume gala? No, it'll be more like the Oscars. More like the Oscars, yeah, okay. Yeah, or like, you know, Final Four or something like that. Um, and then for the first time, they'll actually be able to have an event. So the first two years we did this were during COVID. Yeah. Um, now we're out of COVID and we have a bookstore so we can actually create. It's fact, a beautiful thing. You know, the jury has never met in person before. I have never met a lot of those people in person um, because it's all been happening during COVID and it's all been virtual. Finally, not all of them, because some people are, are at this point in other parts of the country, um, but I think all of the New Yorkers basically are coming to, to P&T uh, to actually meet about the finalists and, and vote, which is is. It's a small thing, but for me, like, no, you know, well, it's, it's why you did it, right? To bring the people together and yeah, have like a cool. real sense of New York together, you know, whatever. It's, 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 it's part of the whole, part of the whole idea. Yeah. Um, we have Tom Chavez of Superset yep. coming up, coming up uh, right now. Interview. Really interesting guy. In, in some ways, um, if, if you like this podcast and like the way that I think about the world and see things, I, I think Tom, from my conversations with him, is somewhat similarly aligned. So, um, 
really impressive guy, uh, but also kind of a divergent thinker. And to me, that's sort of the most interesting thing we could put on the podcast. See you next week, Bradley. See you. Okay, welcome back to Firewall. My guest today is Tom Chavez. Tom, um, you know, you do so many different things that I'm going to introduce you as, as someone that runs a startup studio and kind of the ethical uh, tech project. But, like, tell me how you define yourself. Like, when you're at a cocktail party and someone says, what do you do? Because when I met you the first time, I was like, wow, it's a lot of stuff. <laughs> well, at, if I'm at a cocktail party, Bradley, I say that I'm just a, a guy from Albuquerque who does a thing. But uh, no, it, over many years now, I've been working on software, data, AI. I'm an I'm a engineer by training and have been lucky to build some companies that are all sort of been in the business of processing, capturing, doing useful, uh, hopefully responsible things with data. And that's what brings me to Superset, the, the studio you mentioned. So yeah. startup studio that builds companies that are centered on data, AI, hopefully good ideas and, and turning them into, into interesting software businesses. Um, but having been in this space for a long time, I've seen some, some crazy stuff. I've seen people take liberties and that's what's brought us to the ethical tech project you mentioned. Right. What, what was the most unethical thing you've seen in your career? Oh my goodness. Well, if we're just talking about data, it's, it's all of the nefarious things that companies do on the under in the dark of night, capturing, tracking, uh, and, and without, look, it my beef has always been, and, and we're not zealots, by the way, we're not um, electronic freedom frontier fighters who believe that, you know, all your data needs to be under lock and key. The premise is if you don't, if you consent and you believe that you know what somebody on the other side of the screen is doing with your data and it's good for you, great. It's all of the things that are done, again, in the dark of night, people don't know about that. We've seen large companies, certainly there's a lot of focus on big tech these days, but look, there's, there's a huge array of, of advertising driven companies that are capturing data. And I've, we've seen the last two projects I built, in fact, were generally in the ad tech marketing tech space. And we were white hats. We were aiming to be good guys. We weren't running an ad network. We weren't, you know, sort of taking people's data, meshing it with inventory, marking it up and selling it to marketers. Again, we're, we're pure software guys. But in that context, we saw lots of businesses, again, not just the big tech, you know, Google, Facebook players, but, but many other players uh, stealing, skimming data without your consent, without your knowledge, by the way, a lot of these companies don't even know who's who's taking their data. Uh, TikTok is all over now, and people are making a lot of noise about TikTok. A lot of those websites where their where their code is running, I guarantee you, most of those websites don't even know it's happening. So, this has been, you know, a long journey with a lot of the same dark patterns and, and crazy stuff going on for too long. So Superset is a studio that builds data AI software companies. ETP is a think tank that thinks about how you design and align kind of ethical use of data. How do the two fit together? And like, what should you start first? And what's your vision for each? Yeah. So ETP or the Ethical Tech Project is, as we like to call it, a say and do tank, uh, whose mission is to build, design, align, implement a new blueprint for the ethical use of data. And it's early days, but we're bringing extreme focus to matters of privacy there. 
And we think that by drawing this larger circle and enrolling a larger group of policymakers, uh, legal minds, business people, techies, uh, we can start to put a dent in some of these privacy problems. So it corresponds to some of the work that we do at Superset. Mm -hmm. By the way, I run a company called Catch, which is a data privacy company. Um, so we're in for not, we're not just in for a penny, we're in for a pound. We're doing this because we, we deeply care about the issues, but the ethical tech project is for all comers, right? It's not, it, it corresponds and we hope dovetails in a useful way with some of the things that we do with our businesses at Superset, but we just believe so deeply that, by the way, you can't just solve this with software. You have to enroll policymakers, you know, right. other business minds, legal minds to start to get this right. So if I gave you a magic wand and I said, you can pass laws, regulations, create public-private partnerships, whatever it is, but I want our, my data to be as reasonably protected as possible without destroying the industry, right. what's the answer? Well, look, I think that if you think back on the evolution of the internet, there was a time when we were writing ads like you know, bespoke artisanal little pieces of art into websites. Nobody remembers this, but back in the early days, there was no ad server. So if you wanted to run an ad, you had to actually embed that ad into the HTML mm -hmm. of your website. Yep. There was this magical moment where this thing called the ad server was born. And suddenly when you, Bradley, show up and look at, at a page, there's this perfectly personalized set of rectangles on a screen that give you a set of experiences and a bunch of ads that are tuned to your interests. So it's pretty amazing, right? From, from a technical perspective, uh, it's, it's amazing the scale and real-time nature of that, of that device. So when you hear big tech companies, as we sometimes do, say, well, you know, we'd really love to conquer these privacy issues, but they're so technically complex and there's so many nuances. Look, hark back to the ad server. If we can customize a moment in time, a particular page served up in milliseconds just for you, of course we can address the privacy right. problems as well, right? right. It's, it's an absolutely achievable thing. So if I were king for a day, if we had the ad server, let's think about what you might call the privacy server. Let's mm -hmm. honor and respect every single customer's desires, consents, rights at every moment in every jurisdiction, every corner of the planet. So I told you I'm an engineer, so I'm going to approach these things with, I hope, our useful solutions. We know that this is within reach. By the way, the technology is already here. It just isn't evenly distributed yet. We know that we can do this. So, so just turn down the noise when, when people with a dog in the hunt are telling you that it's just too complicated and we have all of these state regulations and there's GDPR and Oh, it's just this patchwork of complexity. We can't possibly conquer it. Oh yeah, they always do that. I I was debating someone on section eliminate section two thirty the other day, and their their biggest argument was, well, you don't we don't know what the unintended consequences would be if we did that. Well, it's just an argument to never do anything ever anywhere, right? Like that's not an actual argument. It's crazy. It's it's putting your head in the sand. You know, the last thirty years, we're all about crunching data more efficiently. By the way, without regard for any unintended consequences. So what about that, right? Certainly, the next 30 years can be focused more on responsible processing of all of that data where people get to choose. Right. That's, so that's our thing. 
two related questions. One is, you mentioned customer desires. So I have a 16-year-old and a 14-year-old. They would both say they have no expectation of privacy, right? That they just accept that they live in a world where that doesn't exist, and they don't seem to care. So the first thing is, why do they think that, and why do they care? Or why should they care? Yeah, well, look, with the federal discussion or in the president's State of the Union on ad tracking and, tra and tracking generally for kids, when you have these conversations, I think we can, the reason they're so politically attractive is because everybody can rally around that premise. God is in the details, right? So the first thing I would, I'd observe in this context with, when you have kids, look, generationally, they don't know, they don't care. And you can't separate the issue of responsible parenting from any question of how you're of tracking children on the internet. Your iPhone, your computer doesn't know the age of the person looking at the screen. It's a device, it's a machine, right? So, so job one is let's make sure that there's attention to the responsible parenting. Um, but the more general point for me is, look, I don't, uh, I'm not an expert in biochemistry. When I go to the store and I buy some chicken, I have developed an implicit understanding that the FDA is checking that chicken to make sure there's no salmonella in it. Yeah, totally. I, I'm not an expert in chicken. I'm not an expert in biochemistry. Don't, don't sell yourself short. Yeah, you know your way around a poultry farm just fine. <laughs> so, so my point to you is, look, in that same way, we have an implicit right to our expectation that, um, that there be laws and standards of play, right? Whether you're a 16 year old, or, or a 45 year old, that your data be honored and respected at every moment. And it is absolutely within the remit. This is what governments do, right? So now we're gonna get into the conversation about the overreaching hand of government and all the reasons why conservatives start to get stressed out about this, but come on, right? It's a very, in 2023, you can run, but you can't hide from a clear eyed understanding of all the crazy shit that's going on, right? It's not anecdotal anymore. By the way, 10 years ago, it was not understood. In my first company, my, it was my second company, my last company, Bradley, there was uh, a set of articles that Jessica Vassalero, then Jessica Vassalero, now Jessica Lesson, who's a big cheese at the information that Julia Anglin had run on all the ways in which companies were tracking you. And my company, Crux, had done this, this, this detailed study that was showing how all these third parties were capturing, stealing, skimming data without anybody actually knowing. To my earlier point, companies themselves didn't even know that that was going on. Well, fast forward here today, and it was important because people, it wasn't quite clear, right? Fast forward here today, and it drives me crazy when you're reading up these articles about TikTok and everybody's shocked or they're scandalized to discover that TikTok code is running on lots of websites and capturing data about you. It is the exact same issue, the exact same phenomenon we were uncovering and talking about 12, 13 years ago. So my point to you is, come on, the drums have been beating for way too long. This is not anecdotal. We know that there are these harms, right? We know that there's all of this data collection without consent. We know what Instagram does to distort the minds of, of the young people who use it. So. At some point, I think we have an understanding that 
And that's why I was encouraged by the president's State of the Union address. We yeah. have an understanding that somebody's going to finally start to take action. Yeah, I mean, it's one of those things where, like, privacy polls really well. And yet, because it's such a nuanced, complicated issue, the lobbyists and others are able to kind of stop regulatory efforts on it pretty easily. So I, I agree. It was, it was heartening to see the president actually taking it on. And I think, generally speaking, what this White House, I think, understands, which is good, is, you know, in a world that is this polarized and this divided and a House that's run by the Republicans and a Senate and White House by the Democrats, very little is going to happen, right? But there happens to be one thing that, even if for different reasons, people on both sides of the aisle support and want, and I think privacy is clearly right at the top of that list. And so therefore, there is, I think one of the reasons that Biden brought it up is I think he sees it as a realistic chance they can actually get something done about it. Um, I know you're not sort of a political strategist like I'm supposed to be, but like, give me your read on this. Like, you watch the State of the Union, you must have been super excited about it because your issue was front and center. Um, what's the path forward? Well, look, I, I am not a political strategist, uh, but I, have, I was encouraged. And I share your skepticism, by the way. I think you've got to be pretty naive to think that we're going to get a, a proper bill to the floor of Congress anytime soon on this issue. But my sense is in politics, you've got to at least start the conversation. So the president yep. threw a match out the window, and now we're at least talking about it on a national level. It's not some little article snuck into the Wall Street Journal 12 years ago that nobody actually cares about. I'm encouraged that it's front and center. Uh, I think if we're, if we're reasonable and you know just living a practical life down here on Earth, there will be more discussions in the current Congress. I think that there will be more state laws like Connecticut, Virginia, California, and so on. And I guess that really kind of harks back to the founders' vision, right? States as laboratories of democracy, so the states will continue to enact their own legislation. And that's not anecdotal. That's absolutely happening. Well, that's that's happening as we speak, right, for sure. Exactly. Yeah. So, so I think the state activity could catalyze, perhaps, some federal legislation, not in the near term, but over time. Well, especially I think if the state bills are tougher than the federal bill might be, then the incentive for the big tech companies might be, you know what, let's push a bill through Congress that we can live with, as opposed to getting slaughtered in, you know, Hartford or Sacramento or Salt Lake or wherever it is, where we really have kind of less leverage uh, than, than we do there. See, but game that out, Bradley, because now businesses are starting to sort of uh, creak under the weight of all of this statewide legislation. And by the way, a lot of businesses don't understand if you have a consumer in Salt Lake looking at your screen, you're bound by the laws of Utah to right. do whatever. So there's no one size fits all. Sometimes people say, well, it's just snap to a, a GDPR everywhere standard. You can't do that, right? So it, it really is this game of whack-a-mole where you have to do one thing in Utah, you have to honor a different, and they are materially different regulations and, and laws in California versus Connecticut. So businesses, I conjecture, will reach a point where they say, okay, Basta. This is too much. I can't. I can't carry on like this and actually start pushing. Right. It's not just zealots and policymakers, but now businesses start. To right. Go to yeah. They want to know the rules too. Look, it, you hear this from the crypto companies all the time, and I don't think it's unreasonable. Which is just tell us what's legal and what's not. Right. We don't even know, and that's not an unreasonable um, standpoint. It's interesting with software. So, like when. Um, Auto, when emissions from cars, when California really changed their standards completely, it effectively changed it for the whole country, right? Because 
the car makers aren't going to make one set of cars for California and one for the rest of the U.S. And the California market is so massive that you couldn't afford to not do it, right? If it was Vermont, you might say, well, we just won't sell our cars in Vermont. We don't care. But software has always struck me as a little different because it's not as tangible and physical. And so kind of programming it to have sort of different levels in different places seems more feasible to me. Is that how they see it? And if so, what is the tipping point where they're like, screw it, we'll just do it everywhere? Well, I think your example is really apt, and I think it's really relevant here. So we have historical examples of, of mounting complexity that drives a federal uh, a federal, federal legislation. I will tell you, Bradley, the complexity um, in all of these state regulations and other places across the globe, Brazil, you know, the drums are beating in, in Australia and Singapore and so on. All that complexity is great for my software business, right? I mean, the more complexity there is, the more uh, our customers depend on us to help them navigate it. Uh, so I don't know. I think that there's, you know, we need to kind of let this evolve a little bit further. I think that software, and now I sound like a shiny tech bro, and I'm sorry for this, but we can solve those problems in software, right? I mean, you can throw as many of those curveballs and complexities at us as we like. My yeah. engineers love that shit, right? The more complicated the puzzle, the cooler their jobs. It's not, it's not really, um, it, but if we're kind of just trying to focus on what's good for business, what's good for consumers and citizens, look, we're back to why we started the Ethical Tech Project. As software people, we'd like to humbly recognize that we can solve the problems, but you have to put the right frame on it, right? What do we actually want? I, we can write software to do anything you like. The first most primal, most important question is, what do you actually want? Right. And what's practical and useful for consumers, businesses and, and citizens generally. Is there a point where if, you know, there is no kind of broad protection of, of consumers data and privacy and they start to get more and more aware of it? Your book, obviously, sort of a, a catalyzing event, event there where they say, you know what, I'm not going to use Google, I'm not going to use Apple, whatever it is, or do you think that we're always going to end up being captive to the big platforms and kind of agree to whatever rules they set no matter what? Well, that last picture you paint is a dystopian one for me, right? Now, let me also tell you, I use Google, right? right. So because I, I kind of in theory have choices, but not really. So right. you can put on a tinfoil hat and unplug and go to a, a log cabin somewhere in a forest and, and not live your digital life, but it's really not a practical option for most people. So I actually, I do think that, you know, I welcomed the Justice Department action uh, on Google, right? I yeah. think in the app business, let's just talk about this for a minute. What Google has done in digital advertising, if you compare that to financial markets, right? I have a close family friend who worked in Wall Street for a long, long time. We would compare notes as I was getting deeper into ad tech and martech. And I'd say, well, you know, you have, you know, Google is, is on the publisher side of the trade. They're on the marketer side of the trade. They have a dark pool in the middle where nobody knows what the price is and they just allocate inventory at will. This family friend says to me, Mike, you, Tommy, you must have it entirely wrong. You, you got it wrong because there's no way that they can actually be doing that because that's front running the trade. That's illegal in financial markets, right? right. All of these things are, but we have financial regulations that mitigated and resolved those questions. So it just makes so much sense to me, right? That if you're applying those same kinds of principles in terms of um, fair, free, open markets, right? And, and promoting innovation that is 
in conflict with the super concentration of power that you have with those big tech players. I mean, if you just apply all of that kind of logic, but of course, right, the, the digital advertising market is crying out for a set of more reasonable standards that allows there to be more innovation, more competition generally. I think that that day is coming. I just don't know exactly when. And then within the other big players, you know, Apple and Tim Cook do a good job of at least coming off like they really care to do about privacy, and they kind of leverage these sort of really uh, kind of unusual situations like, oh, the Department of Homeland Security wants the data on this particular person. We're not going to give it to you. Um, and it, it because it's sort of extreme, it gets a lot of attention, and it furthers this perception that Apple's on the, the privacy side. What's the reality? Look. Nobody wants Apple to succeed and win in privacy more than me. And so I am disheartened, but I will tell you, and I've said this for a while, Bradley, anytime you hear one of these big tech, big tech players talking about making a move under the banner of privacy, you know, some nefarious shit is going down. Yeah, exactly. So I was always hopeful that that wasn't the case with Apple, but increasingly now it, it seems to me that you know, Gizmodo has done some good reporting on this, right? They they found that if you if you however you toggle that setting on your your data can it be used for analytics, right? Apple is still going to collect that data, whether they you've given their them your consent or not. So it's just like the Hollywood facade of actually giving consent. They are tracking you, right? And they are doing things with your data without consent. What Apple tries to do in the broader market is present themselves as the white hats, right? You know, don't, you know, Facebook, Google, those are the bad guys. Privacy, that's iPhone. We see all of those billboards everywhere. Um, I think it's pretty clear as this reporting continues to unfold that no, Apple is, is not honoring your privacy. It's not honoring your consent. And they're using your data to compete in their own advertising businesses with the other Behemoths that they that they want to topple. So, uh, I thought for a minute that they were good guys. I'm increasingly skeptical. So I'll, I'll I'll just list off a bunch of the behemoths that that you just kind of were referring to. You tell me who the best actor in your view is in the space and the worst. Um, Apple, Google, Amazon, Facebook, Twitter, Microsoft. Okay, when it comes to data, right? Yeah. Just data. I think that Amazon has done a pretty good job. Now they're okay. doing things with that data to, you know, collect it from competitors to disadvantage them through its own marketplaces. And that's been established. But if relative to the, the, the handshake that they have with the consumer, right, and what they're going to do with the data and how do they apply it, it seems to me that Amazon and Microsoft are at the top of that list. By the way, the reason, let's have a moment of silence for Microsoft. The more that these businesses have advertising side projects, the greater the risk of, of them taking liberties with your data, right? right? So Microsoft, yeah, they've had, I was in that, the online services division when they were running an advertising business and they're doing things with Netflix now and they've kind of kept it alive, but it's not the central focus. And I, and I also think that under current leadership, they have demonstrated um, a better focus, a more believable commitment on to honoring privacy than the others. The other ones you mentioned on that list, Bradley, they're, you know, it's a den of thieves. I don't really have, <laughs> I don't really have a lot of confidence. I mean, who's a little bit better and a little bit worse. I mean, I think we can all agree that, that Facebook, you know, they just, 
the, the multi-hundred million dollar fines just pile up. Everybody shrugs their shoulders and says, oh, well, it's Tuesday. Facebook just, you know, did some other more, more crazy shit in another jurisdiction somewhere in Europe. And right. They just keep on paying the fines. It's amazing. Yeah. Right. That's why you've got to ultimately, that's one of the arguments I like to make in, in favor of repealing Section 230 is um, rather than government fines, you turn this shit over to the plaintiff's lawyers and let them go crazy, they will yield enough judgments to start changing behavior on the platform side, right? Well, see, and let's, let's map that to the, the California question, right? Because as people wrestle with the question of federal legislation versus state legislation, the thing that they worry about is, well, who's on top, right? Does state law preempt federal law or vice versa? Is the federal law a ceiling or a floor? The private right of action is, is a related consideration, right? Where the more the plaintiffs can actually take action on behalf of consumers yep. to sue companies, conservatives hate that. But look, to your point, the more, you know, as, as soon as money starts to change hands in the context of some of these lawsuits, you would imagine right. that that catalyzes more energy around a federal state. Right. For conservatives to get to the policy outcome they want, it would help if they enable the group that they don't like, which are the trial lawyers. But there, And there are times where the trial lawyers are ridiculous, I would say, too. But like with tobacco, there are times where it, I think it does make a big difference. Last question, I want to pivot to a different part of your life. So you're an avid musician. You're on the board of the Save the Music Foundation. Now, in your day job, especially at Superset, you're thinking about what are new trends in AI, in data, that we could build and, and spot and, and make money on? Um, What's the corollary for that in music? Like, what's the underrated category or subculture that, you know, the listeners probably don't know that much about, but you're like, this is or should be the next big thing? Well, Bradley, you've uh, you're, you're triggered one of my favorite topics, and I ponder this on the weekends. I don't have the answer, but, you know, <laughs> it strikes me. It strikes me, right? When you look at all the excitement in generative AI, okay, we have text and language. That's exciting, chat GPT, right? Yep. Um, video, by the way, deep fakes are, are coming soon, right? Yep. And the technology we, that scares us and we say, oh my God, there's no way, but it's coming soon. What's the, what's the format or media type that has yet to have, as far as we can tell, any kind of, uh, glimmerings or connection to generative AI? It's obviously music. So there are some companies and some projects out there that that are, that are using machines to generate music and it's mostly awful. I've been tracking this for a long time. Okay. Bach, you, you have machines that can write a beautiful Bach cantata as it turns out, because that is structured music that follows a certain set of rules. And some of those uh, computer generated Bach pieces are actually quite beautiful, but in general, right? I think that music is a much harder place for, for AI to take root. I do think though, that the, if it unfolds and I, I have a, an interest in this, so we'll see if I maybe start to throw my hat in the ring here too. I think that it will be less pure AI and more what people at the beginning of AI used to refer to as augmented intelligence. So what's the interplay between human beings yep. and music, right? If we can create an opportunity for you to uh, share some of the thoughts and feelings you have or your daughters to, to you know, emote about the super tragic, unhappy breakup they went through, and have that bubbled into a song yep. that machines are generating. I think that's pretty cool, right? I think yeah, that's, really cool. that's definitely coming. So it's not pure computer generated, but but some kind of interesting interplay between 
humans and machines that, that I think will, will happen in music. Cool. All right. How do people find you? How do they find Superset? How do they find ATP? Uh, Tom at superset.com is the easiest. I'm on LinkedIn. That's, that's the only kind of social media that I, I find useful. So um, hit me up on, on LinkedIn. That's the best place to find me. There we go. Cool. Tom Chavez, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Bradley.